Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings and welcome to the Data Blast. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master, although today, bad influence. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and 30% of people can juggle, but 75% of people hate juggling, so that means that 5% of jugglers hate themselves. And live from the Humongodome. I am Ash Versus. This is a final episode of Bad Influence aired on the 2nd of January 1996. FIFA 96 topped the console charts, Michael Jackson's Earth Song was top of the pops, and Babe was the UK box office number one. The pig is back. That'll do, pig. That'll do. But we wanted to do this final episode of Bad Influence. We actually were going to do this like as we reached it in our timeline, so it would have been before episode 16 or 17 of Games Master Series 5, but we kind of saved it until the end instead. For, for various different reasons. But yeah, I thought we should cover this because Games Master is what it is now, but Bad Influence was still going strong, although this is its final broadcast. At the very least, it seems unaware that it was its final broadcast. It was very much acknowledging this is the end of the season, but there was no kind of this is the end moment to it other than ending on a song and having some outtakes. It's got a very much an end of series vibe to it but it's not an end of broadcast vibe to it. Like they literally just say like, that's the end of this series. Like apparently, I mean, I was reading up on the Wikipedia earlier, like, cause there's not a lot written about bad influence. It's not as remembered as games master was, uh, but the Wikipedia page basically just says that they were kind of at odds 
with CITV because series three and four moved into a slightly different direction, particularly series four that was trying to aim more towards a teenage market. You can see that in this episode as well. Like, with, like it is joke central at times and like comparing things. The final sequence where it becomes the angry video game nerd of them destroying like bad games and stuff. And so the, apparently there was some chat about rebranding the show for a fifth series to try and target more towards that younger audience. It just, it never ended up happening. So there, like there were talks apparently of, of another series of the show. It would have been lovely to see because obviously we covered series one, episode one, and now X years later, here we are with series four, episode 14. It is recognisably the same show. And by that, I mean exhausting. Oh, yeah, it is. I, I was normally when I make my notes for Games Master, I can maybe slow Games Master down a bit, just a fraction on playback and type in real time. And then only pause it if I want to go and check something online, go and look up a wiki article or search a magazine archive or whatever. Bad influence. I was pausing it every minute. I'm just like, boy, criminy, this is this is tiring. And then I went back afterwards and did my googling and my searching and all that stuff i have a note here that says one minute in and i'm knackered already there is a moment in this episode where they kind of preview some of the big games that are coming out in 1996 and they cover like eight or ten games in about 40 seconds like it is at most a minute and hilariously at least three of those games never appear yeah exactly but it's it's kind of funny that you mentioned that it is the same show noticeably the same show it's the same studio it is broadly the same presenters it's still andy crane it's still violet berlin but we don't have uh nam rude anymore nor do we have uh z over in america uh instead we have a new presenter in tonya soul but it, it just feels different i i thought the studio felt bigger i definitely thought it felt bigger it felt more populated this is a show that has become popular because if you think about how much open space there was in that series one episode one and there were just a few kids dotted all around the place hanging from the bloody rafters in this one but while i I do think it is very much to me at least recognizably the same show there are a number of changes you already mentioned the presenters gone is nam rude gone is z right and what happened was Z Wright left. Violet became the international and the roving reporter. And then Sonia came in as the kind of in-studio co-host to Andy Crane. And this episode is the only one with all three of them presenting from the studio. So kind of quite memorable in that regard. And I wonder if that is as much because it was close to Christmas or it was just after Christmas, depending on what the turnaround was. But series one, we had the virtual reality and the fun-loving dinosaurs, and Series 2, they stuck around. Series 3, boom, a new metal clanky theme, a new metal clanky title sequence. And Luke, if you're going to seek inspiration from a game for your new up-to-date title sequence, I mean, there's only one obvious choice in the mid-90s. It is quite hilarious that Bad Influence chose rise of the robots to be its influence for the intro to series three and four particularly because what is almost the final line of this episode and therefore the final you know the final line of any bad influence episode but it is just that what a sign of the times that is that for series three they were like man rise of the robots is going to be the hot ticket for 1994 1995 it is going to revolutionize the way the video games work you and i we talked about it ad nauseum in this podcast when we were reaching our timeline because games master were doing it as well 
Games Master Magazine were doing it because everyone was talking this game up. No one could have foreseen that it was absolute garbage. You know, the sequel came out a few years later. Weren't much better. Hello and Happy New Year from a very special bad influence. Uh, not yet, Sean. This week, we'll be looking at the best and worst of last year. We've got the best add-ons for the PC, including the virtual guitar. We'll be looking forward to the top games on all the hot consoles. More importantly, we'll be revealing the worst games on all systems later. We get our opening title sequence. It's, it's actually pretty cool. Hmm. And the studio itself, actually, I think maybe that has a slight top of the pops feel, certainly from its kind of like crowded, happening, everything going on nature. And speaking of musical acts. Oh, bam, bam. Yeah, it is a proper top of the pops moment, including the lip syncing. We should just dive straight into this episode now, because they start off at a rate of knots. Yeah, this is, again, so bad influence of not taking a moment to breathe. I actually was quite thankful when the art dabbler thing came up, actually, because it was just watching Violet Berlin do a nice painting for for two minutes. But yeah, this is just Andy Crane introduced to the show and a new year. Here's what we're going to be doing. Boom, straight over. Sonia Soul. Here's what we're going to be doing with the virtual guitar. Boom, Violet Berlin. We're going to be going through this. Plus, boom, the shaman are here. I know kids have got short attention spans, but bloody hell. It's, it's so markedly different from Games Master Series 5 which has such a lackadaisical pace when you in comparison. I mean, we've talked about the change in presenters, those that have gone, those that have joined. And whilst some aspects of the presentation have changed, I think this is why, to me, it feels like very much identifiably the same show. Because Series 1, Episode 1 to Series 4, Episode 14, we are launching at the exact same speed. And we are, for the most part, maintaining that speed. In fact, the quick-shot nature of most of the show, apart from a pause, for an art package. Am I talking about episode one or am I talking about series four, episode 14, Luke? We've actually got guest reviewers on this show as well that they announced, like some uh, celebrity appearances, Nicola Quilter and John Adam, uh, both of Home and Away doing a, they just say they're going to be reviewing Yoshi's Island, but they actually review two other games as well. You know, they're here obviously for the prestige of being on Bad Influence and also, Luke, it's panto season. <laughs> That's why they're here is to plug their pantos. Such a CITV thing to do is like, and you can see them in panto. But yes, yeah, so we get to that intro where we're talking about virtual guitars, upcoming peripherals, PCs, games, worst games, best games, Shaman, Home and Away, Yoshi's Island, excitement, one minute, literally one minute in, and I'm exhausted. Also, Luke, jugglers, what the hell? Why are they jugglers? Yeah, we have this running gag throughout the episode. I say throughout the episode until sort of about minute 17 when it pays off of this guy just juggling and just like Andy Crane would be like, not now, mate. And then like, you know, cut to Violet Blind doing something and he'll be juggling next to him. He's like, no, not you, not just yet, because they've got like a, this juggling game that's coming up later on. But it's like, you're right, because we have this breakneck pace and then Bob Ross comes in because we get to sit down with Violet Berlin an art dabbler. If you were lucky enough to get a PC for Christmas, we present the Bad Influence Guide to the best things to do with it. First, here's Violet with the best art package we've ever seen. It's called Art Dabbler, and it's been designed for artists rather than techies. So instead of getting a clumsy mouse, you get a pad and a pen, and the screen's been laid out like a painting table. You can create paintings in all kinds of styles, from pastel still lives like this, to pointless pictures like this one. Now, I'm no expert, but I'm going to have a go at doing a landscape watercolour. And literally just watch her paint for two minutes. Series 1, episode 1, we saw an art package. And it was rudimentary. It was good and impressive for the time. 
Art Dabbler here, I actually thought was pretty impressive. It looks awesome. There's a lot of the stuff in this art package that is still what you do today. The blocking in colours and then using the kind of essentially smudge and blend tools to kind of spread things out and create gradients and shifts. I do that on my iPad now. And all that's changed is I'm not using a graphics tablet and looking at a monitor is I've got the pen and I've got the iPad and I'm going straight onto the surface. To back up that point there, when I was searching for Art Dabbler earlier, I found a listing for it on Amazon, which had a one-star review of it left in April of 2020 that was essentially complaining that you can no longer use the product. There's always one, and they're always leaving those reviews on Amazon. This is what they wrote. Do not buy. This is a fabulous program that Corel ended up with after moving from Fractal to MetaCreation, then to Corel. Corel basically buried it. It has not been reissued. The problem with this program is that it was configured to be run within a window of memory, so it cannot be used on modern machines. It keeps telling you it's out of memory due to the memory setting within the program. Too bad Corel has no plans for it. I mean, realistically, a lot of the functionality in it has been superseded. And I would argue you can probably find a lot of that in other Corel packages or Adobe packages, or probably a fair few open source packages or something that will cost you $9.99 on your iPad, iPhone or Android tablet. They've not continued it on because it's redundant. They've probably just cherry-picked good features and dropped it in. Can you imagine that person that works at Corel that's getting this angry phone call from someone leaving a review on Amazon in 2020 being like, why isn't there an update available for Art Dabbler? And they're on the system being like, the fuck is Art Dabbler? They Google it and they're like, what's a bad influence? (laughs) Who's a Violet Berlin? Is that the girl from Micro Machines? (laughs) (laughs) I, I did dig seeing that graphics tablet because of course they were around at that point i think we'd already seen them being used on a number of things they were actually also used in music packages because you could drag notes around and do stuff like that but it was very very groovy to see it because the first package we saw back in that first episode was mouse driven and even today a lot of stuff still is confession time for all my artistic ability or ability to bodge it depending on what i'm doing it wasn't until the apple pencil that i actually got the hang of a stylus for all my hand-eye coordination i could never do stylus down here on the desk coordinating with what's going on on the screen i could fudge it and i would undo a lot but it never felt natural but I wished it did. I think my career would have taken a different path if it did, because it would have been a better way for me to get what's up here in my head onto the screen. And I'm sure I would have seen this episode the first time round, and I probably would have seen Art Dabbler and gone, I really want that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm an MS Paint kid. Uh, through and through, because I, I actually don't have any much of a, an artistic bone to me, hence my my hatred of the Spirograph on two Christmas episodes that we've done. Uh, I, I've always been quite impressed by them. I didn't see one until I, a friend of mine, later on in my life, when I was one in my mid-20s, I moved in with a guy who was very artsy, and he had one of them. And I was like, whoa, this is, it looks like incredible tech. So that's, you know, like the late, 20, late 2000s, maybe early 2010s. It's quite rad, actually, to kind of go back here to a show in 1996 and see it's was the tech was always there. What blew my mind is, unlike some early graphics tablets, it had pressure sensitivity on it. So the harder you press, the kind of darker the pencil line was or the more paint kind of splodged onto the screen. Really, really fun stuff. And whilst, yes, there was an outline, kind of a bit of a here's one we made earlier, 
we pretty much in real time saw Violet splodge down some rough colours, get the smudge tool, smudge it around, create some nice gradients, uh, go full on Bob Ross, as it were. And it's really cool for 9596. You can see how basic the Windows environment is around it. I'm fairly confident this is running on Windows 3.1. And Violet says, you know, not bad for someone that failed art at school. And I think she said roughly the same about her artistic ability back in Series 1. And it didn't look bad. It looked pretty good. I'm sure if she'd had more time and hadn't had to be presenting to camera at the same time, she'd have probably done even better. Had a good time doing it as well. Yeah, I thought the painting that she came up with at the end was really cool. And it's like, if you haven't seen the episode as well, it's a watercolour thing. So yeah, she literally splodges down some colours. She effectively says, look, I know this looks rubbish now, but wait till you see this. Selects the watercolour tool and then makes it look like a genuine watercolour painting. It's really cool. But we then go from the art department to the other bastion of creativity at school, the music department. This is the best fun music package we've had to go on. It's called Virtual Guitar, and it's for budding rock stars or jazz musicians. Okay, great session, guys. Everybody take five. Now, the original version came with a virtual guitar, as demonstrated by the lovely Sonia here, but the new updated version has a virtual pick, which kind of makes the guitar a bit redundant, really, Sonia. And let's face it, you and the band were going in different directions musically. See ya. This is how it works. And would you Adam and Eve it? We only really started talking about this a few weeks ago. Luke, it's Quest for Fame again. I love the fact that Quest for Fame, the virtual guitar is on here. And the reason why I love it here on Bad Influence is because, like, you know, when we had it on Games Master with Yannick Gers of Iron Maiden, they had the full guitar piece for it. Here, however, this is what you were talking about with Andy Crane playing it on a badminton racket. Was it bad? I think it was tennis, Luke. I, I don't I don't wish to pull sports top trumps here, but I, I think it was a tennis racket. A tennis racket with shoelaces tied across it to look like guitar strings. Uh, someone in the props department had very... Uh, a lot of, I say a props department. One of the runners had a good time making that. Arts and craft again. <laughs> exactly, yes. Also, apologies. Uh, I got my touchdowns wrong. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought this was really awesome to, to to see this in. And like, they actually even show you more of the game that we didn't get to see in Games Master as well, like past the, the club stage. So you actually get to see, you know, what happens after that, the final level where you actually get to play on stage with Aerosmith. And then he's basically, he's just going around and he's just pointing out, hey, you can strum this on anything. Look, I can literally play the game on Violet's earlobe. Yeah, mistake. That was yeah. a mistake because she clouts him. And it is a, it's not a playful OU, it's a proper thwack. I'm not sure she meant to smack him that hard with it, but hey, she followed through on it and I think he deserved it. But I, I did enjoy this and also, fair fucks to Andy Crane. He actually does pretty well on this when he's trying. He then deliberately messes it up to show what happens when you go wrong. But if you look at where his lines were versus the notes that you're meant to be matching up with, I'd say an 80-85% accuracy there. Not bad, not shabby. Well, that again is what happens when you put someone onto a game that doesn't play the guitar versus putting someone onto that game who plays a guitar for a living. It's just like, you know, Yannick Gers goes on and he's like, this isn't how a guitar works. Andy Crane's like, no, but this is how technology works. And I totally get that. Also, I did love the fact that apparently, and I'm assuming this is in canon, the final venue is the Humunga Dome, which my note says... That sounds very Dex-ish. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the Megatastic Dome. 
if it uh, was uh, Dex. And of course, it's Doom. But there's a great trend nowadays for link-up games, and the best way to play Doom is against other people. Up to four PCs can be linked together to play Doom as a deathmatch, and each player has their own colour. And you can see Victoria's grey character in Mr. C's screen just there, and Mr. C's green character in Victoria's screen. And the aim of the game is simply to kill your opponent more times than they can kill you. So grab that shotgun and go. This next bit, though, I'm slightly more confused by because it's basically just saying you can link up PCs to play Doom. Yeah, that that wasn't a lot. That was that's not any new news. Let's just rewind a bit, Luke. This is ITV. It's CITV. Exactly. This is Doom on children's television. Leaving aside the Times reboot kind of spoofed these kind of games because reboot was past series one into series two and three getting edgy. We did an episode for UCP Extra, which parodies The Evil Dead. But this is Doom on CITV. D-O-O-M, Doom. I was fully expecting, you know, they mentioned Doom and I was like, okay, well, they won't show it though, will they? And they actually do. Granted, it's not like full-on gory side of Doom, but they did show Doom being played and they showed two, like one of the members of the Shaman killing the other, killing Mr. C, no less, from Games Master Series 5, Episode 1. I will say, kill... The camera was off monitor, pointing sideways. You saw the shotgun blast. You didn't see so much of the impact. But whilst they were running around a mostly empty level, you did see bodies on the floor with piles of blood underneath it. And you're right, the LAN parties were definitely something that was known. But some of the kids watching this, whose parents maybe had just recently got PCs, or maybe their older brothers or sisters or whatever had got PCs, they might not know this. Quite how they're going to realise it in 1995 going on 1996, who knows? But still a pretty cool thing to see and a nice little feature. And yeah, we have Doom on a kid show. Which again goes after that thing we were saying earlier, where like Bad Influence was trying to go more towards a teenage market, whereas CITV is like, no, 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 we are literally called Children's ITV. Uh, and the, those two ideals being at loggerheads with each other. Yeah, bad influence wants to do stuff on Doom. I don't think CITV will be particularly thrilled about that. Last episode. Who gives a shit at this point? <laughs> it's that party atmosphere, that last day of school atmosphere. Yeah, this is the equivalent of getting to watch Gremlins on the last day of school just before Christmas. I did want to actually just say, thinking of Doom, because recently I've been getting Doom set back up again on my PC after I kind of played around and broke it a couple of times, getting ready for under consultation live. So I got GZ Doom installed, I found my level packs, my wads... I got Thatcher's tech base because you would. And then I decided to look and find what other mods are there out there? What other kind of like full uh, quality of life improvements are there for Doom? And that's when I found Brutal Doom Black Edition. Uh-oh. I'm just going to quickly send you a video link just so you can watch maybe the first 30 seconds of what this does to Doom. Okay, here we go. So this is original Doom, but with a bunch of mods on top. Very nice atmosphere, very nice. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> it makes a bit of a difference, doesn't it? It really does, yeah. It's a much more bloodier version. And that's saying something, but yeah, there is dismemberment, spurting arteries. Also, I believe there are actually kind of finishing moves where a grunt or a demon will fall to their knees and you can basically just go up and literally punch their head off. Yes, that's kind of taken from the Doom 2016. Oh, yeah. is it kind of like to an outside perspective? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. There's some amazing work done here. So I've started, there's about, I think the video I linked you to has three or four different 
like mods running. So I'm building it up and just making sure, you know, I don't turn my, my computer into a fiery inferno of its own accord. But um, nothing related to bad influence. But I just saw that and I thought, it's old school Doom, but it's very modern old school Doom. And I thought you'd appreciate that. I certainly did indeed. And finally, here's Violet with the worst ever CD-ROM for the PC. It's called Karaoke Shakespeare. And it was a feeble attempt to bring interactive theatre to the home. The idea was the computer puts all the words up on screen and then reads them out, except for your part, because you can then become the techno-lovey and perform the words yourself. Now, I'm going to have a go at being the second witch in the famous witch scene from Macbeth. Here goes. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done. Come on. When the battle's lost and won. Look, there's a spelling mistake. It should be W-O-N, not O-N-E. And it sounds air, like the, the programmers recorded the voices themselves when and recorded it in a toilet, come to that, which is where this CD-ROM should be flushed. Could you catch the name of this? I think it was Karaoke Shakespeare. In fact, all my research was based on the phrase karaoke shakespeare because i did find something yeah well that's what i was kind of thinking as well because when i first read it down i was like is it just called carrie okay shakespeare i thought she might have said carry on shakespeare but yes no i think it is karaoke shakespeare oh no matron stop (laughs) carry on shakespeare that would have been great i'll be honest if you search for carry on shakespeare you'll find a lot of stuff and if you search for karaoke shakespeare with quotation marks cd rom you will find that there wasn't just one karaoke shakespeare cd there were three there was romeo and juliet macbeth and a midsummer night's dream and the idea of this is that you get to act out a shakespeare play so like in this violet berlin talks about like you know doing the the witch scene from macbeth where they give you one of the characters to play so like this robotic voice will do one of you know do all the other lines and then it cuts to you so you can do your line however she was like you know, said it's one of the worst uh cd-rom of the week this this feels like it should have been part of cd-rom of the week on games master series 5 and she's there even pointing out like spelling errors and, and mistakes within the text and things like that and then talks about how like oh it sounds like it was done in the toilet where it belongs like, oh you're a different show now aren't you bad influence Weirdly, the write-up I found of this series was in Wired magazine. That's what I found as well. <laughs> they were much more generous with it, I think. They, they actually seem to quite like it, to be honest, uh, detailing all the different things you could do. And hey, guess what, Luke? You could get together with friends and take a part each. That's a party. Well, that's the fun side of, of karaoke, really, isn't it? Is doing a duet song with someone. So why not uh, translate that into Shakespeare? I think you've answered your own question there. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I actually know people that have got together and done like in groups with some wine and some cheese and some nibbles, and they've kind of got maybe a comedy or a stage play or a book or something like that. And they've done kind of like read-throughs of it, having fun, swapping characters, playing around. That sounds pretty fun, but scooching around a 14 or 15-inch monitor, reading lines with typos and listening to the toilet cubicle repertoire theatre reading back at you. It's it's not quite Friday night party time. This is not a crisps and hummus type situation. Like, this doesn't sound like the sort of party I'm going to. This is not crisps and hummus. This is not even a mediocre bowl of twiglets kind of party. This is just nothing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm, this would have made a great CD-ROM of the week feature. 
Because this is the sort of thing that Dom would have had an absolute ball with. Anyway, we're back and, oh, look, there's a juggler. This <laughs> studio has got an infestation problem, Luke. Of one guy juggling. Is it one guy? Or, I mean, to, to be honest, you know, you start with one juggler, it goes to two, it goes to three. Before you know, you are overrun with jugglers, you're tripping over balls. And they just, they just, he's just always coming in too early. No sense of timing, which is worrying for a juggler. First up is Yoshi's Island on the Super Nintendo, which is the eagerly anticipated sequel to the classic Super Mario World. You control Mario's dinosaur psychic Yoshi in a bid to save the infant Luigi from villainous wizard Kamek. The game features gorgeous, colorful graphics, a range of imaginative baddies, and all the delightful oddities you've come to expect from a Mario title. Here's Nicola Quarter and John Adam, otherwise known as Donna and Luke from Home and Away. It's been two years since the last Mario game, but it's definitely worth the wait, ain't you, I think so. Mm. Yoshi has to make his way through six worlds with Mario on his back. Each world has eight areas. You'll find a host of coins and other items, and if you find them all, you get to enter the bonus area. Yoshi has more weapons than any other Mario game, which is great because there's tons of baddies for you to kill. He has a big tongue which he can whip out, grab other enemies, swallow and make into eggs to fire at other enemies. There are some really cool power-ups which allow Yoshi to change from a dinosaur into a tank, a helicopter and what's the other one? Oh yeah, a train. Wow. This game is a real corker, right? And it proves that 16-bit systems are still alive and kicking. This game's got it all. Fantastic graphics and great gameplay. And the celebrity scores for Yoshi's Island, both Nicola and John gave it a resounding five. So we go over to our review zone for Yoshi's Island, which is being reviewed, as we mentioned earlier, by Nicola Quilter and John Adam of Home and Away fame. Although, as is TV tradition of the 1990s, both of them weren't really on Home and Away by the time this was actually broadcast. Nope, they were in the UK doing panto season. But yep, they're up to review Yoshi's Island, a.k.a. Super Mario World 2, a.k.a. Super Mario Brothers 5. It is an interesting way they do these celebrity reviews because, realistically, the heavy lifting is done by the regular host that does the introduction. Sonya kind of gives us the actual details of the game and kind of the meat and veg of what's involved, the specifications, yada, yada, yada. And then it's over to Donna and Luke from home and away to review it. And this first one, at least, has a real QVC feel to it. I've written my notes here. They feel like they're reading a script. I think in the later ones, they look like they're sort of playing the game while talking about it, or at least acting like they're playing a game. Here, this just feels like a script was written for people and they are just reading the words, like probably on a prompter in front of them, on like an easy prompter type thing. Because they're not really reviewing the games. It's like a review from Sonic the Comic, where you literally just list off the features that are in it. Now, there's even one point when the lads starts listing off like things, the power-ups you can do, doesn't know what his next line is, and turns to a guy and be like, what's that other power-up? Oh yeah, it's that one. And then just says the word again. Yeah, it's definitely very blatant in this one, but, and we'll talk about the later reviews as we come to them, there are definite moments in the later ones where I'm like, either your acting talent has improved or you're actually playing this game. Because there's a couple of moments where the dude, Luke, or whatever the actor's name was, is very much kind of like, oh, you're bugger you know you, you got me you know it, and it's not kind of like an exaggerated thing it is a proper kind of like digging elbow in ribs muttering to the side of the camera thing and i was like huh, maybe they just weren't into platformers maybe racing and fighting games is where their interests were at or they found those easier to pick up and play 
Well, I mean, they clearly like this game, or at least they pretended that they liked this game, because they give it five, which I'll presume is out of five. Yep, two fives out of fives. Donna ends by saying, it's got everything, and for $54.99, Luke, I'd fucking well hope so. Actually, 1996 promises to be an exciting year for video games. PC owners will be salivating at the prospect of the stunning HMS Carnage, a game set on Mars and featuring strange, steam-driven spacecraft. The impressive racing simulator Formula One Grand Prix 2 is out at the end of the month, and Saturn owners will be looking forward to slick, futuristic racer Vertigo and hopefully a conversion of Fighting Vipers, the brand-new arcade beat-em-up from the team behind Virtua Fighter 2. On the PlayStation, the stunning atmospheric adventure Alien Trilogy will be clamouring for your attention, together with Tekken 2, the sequel to the best beat-em-up ever. And then, of course, there's the Ultra 64. Some of its most promising games are updates of classic SNES titles, like the stunningly 3D Mario 64, and perhaps the most wanted of all, the four-player Super Mario Kart R. But we don't have time to hang around with more reviews, Luke. We've got another thing to do with Violet, who's giving us the heads up on some PC games that are due out in 1996. And some Saturn games, and some PlayStation games, and some games coming out for the Ultra 64. Like, this is the moment I was talking about earlier, where she just lists off a load of games, and you get to see them for, like, fractions of seconds before we move on to the Atari ST. Which, boy howdy, the Atari ST, there's something I didn't expect us to be having a feature on in 1996. Although, pretty cool feature. It is, yeah. It's like seeing in the buyer's guide for the for Games Master in 1996. But this first game, HMS Carnage, never came out. In fact, by the time it was cancelled, it wasn't even known as HMS Carnage. It went on to be known as Dreadnought. And the idea was it was kind of a steampunk Victorian shooter strategy type thing set on Mars. So very much kind of like Revenge of War of the World stuff. It wasn't cancelled for a while longer. Because obviously it got its debut here, it made its appearance in a few magazines, a few trade shows, and it was in development for three years until 1998, when Ocean Software, shovelware merchants that they were, were acquired by Infograms, and Infograms went, cool, that's expensive, that's not ready, that's going. Boom, cancelled after three years. It was mostly going to be a PC game, but there were plans for PlayStation and Saturn ports. But the console versions would have actually done away with some of the strategy elements they were planning for the PC version. They would have essentially dumbed it down. It's kind of sad because, you know, I made the comment, Ocean, they were shovelware producers. They made a lot of kind of mediocre movie tie-ins. But they thought that the arrival of CD-ROM and the increase in multimedia in the PC industry could be their chance to make something new, make something different. The development team were called Tribe, and that was the name that Ocean rebranded their internal development studio into. They invested money, they hired new talent, they got new equipment, they got new development stations. And they actually went out to this pool of people and went, come up with ideas, come up with concepts, come up with games that are going to be big and expansive enough to justify a CD-ROM. HMS Carnage was one of those concepts. There was another called Silver, which did actually get released eventually. And the third was actually a licensed property, but it was a Hanna-Barbera licensed property called Zoics, which was going to be a point-and-click adventure starring the kind of famed Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters. And going by the use of the word Zoics, I'm sure Scooby-Doo would have been there, probably some wacky races, that kind of entire canon of the Barbera-verse. That sounds pretty cool as well. 
And then, yeah, Ocean got bought by Infograms and Infograms went, yeah, cut our losses on a bunch of stuff. And it's a shame because, I mean, they did have some good games, but Ocean just actually making a concentrated effort to be original, be bold, be big, be brash, be creative. And they got taken out back and given the old yellow treatment. And it's a shame as well, because clearly a lot of it's done. You know, if, if they, not just the fact that they're showing clips of it here, they they are sending these clips out to magazines and TV shows and everything like that to say, look, preview this now because it's going to get released this year. So clearly there was quite a bit of it already got good to go. I think Ocean were very confident because this is 1996. Infograms don't buy them until 1998. So that's another two years, at least one year beyond this estimated release window where Ocean is still going, yeah, we believe in this project. We're going to put money into it. And maybe if it wasn't ready after three years of development, maybe cancelling it w- was the right thing. 100%. But that's that's the point I'm making, is that something clearly happened in 96 that really damaged this project. A couple of immediate thoughts that come to mind, and this is based on nothing more than extrapolating things that tend to happen with video games. One, they started to play it. It was shit. It is an ocean game after all. True. Harsh, but true. Two, they realised that it was actually too demanding on PCs of the time, or that load times were excessive, or that it ran at five frames per second, and therefore they had to go back and do things over. Or do you remember when we did our buyer's guide and I talked about the advent of the voodoo, the 3DFX? What if they'd spent all this time, a year at this point, developing this game that was working in software rendering, and suddenly the 3DFX is there, the Voodoo cards are there, these 3D Accelerator cards are there. They can either continue down the path and continue to make a software-based rendering engine game, or they can rewind a number of steps and start adapting it for these new fancy-dancy 3D adding cards. That would that would only be my, my theory on it. It's just that they'd be like, this would be better if we use something else. Yeah, and, and scrapping or redoing whole chunks of game to take advantage of new technology, it's happened a lot. Hello, Duke Nukem Forever. The the thing that uh, jumped out to me from these, uh, the list of games here, because it's also, we get Formula One GP2 on the PC, Vertigo on the Saturn, Fighting Vipers on the Saturn, Alien Trilogy on the PlayStation, Tekken 2 on the PlayStation. But it's, it's Alien Trilogy was the one that jumped out to me because I absolutely loved Alien Trilogy on the PlayStation. What an inc- I thought it was an amazing game. The the footage that they show here, it doesn't look at that good when the the game actually comes out. But the other thing that really jumped out to me is that we're still calling it the Ultra 64 in bad influence land, even though we would have known by this point that it's the Nintendo 64. And we even see a brief clip of the front of a Nintendo 64 that has the word Nintendo and the number 64. It's all that footage from Tokyo. Although we're still referring to Mario Kart 64 as Super Mario Kart Ah, maybe it's just it's uh, uh what's the word i'm after force of habits because we've been calling it the ultra 64 for so long we're not used to calling it the nintendo 64 yet no i mean also the back of that episode of games master magazine from just the other month it was still the ultra 64 on there and that was an official nintendo advert yeah i, mean, I think it's i think a lot of it's force of habit lots late changes and stuff i did find it, the fascinating thing about that though is where it says super mario kart r in brackets it says U64, which is a little window in what it could have been shortened to, what we could have been calling it on Twitter and stuff when we're talking about retro memories. But the other games you mentioned, Formula One Grand Prix 2, that did come out. That was a fairly big seller for Micropros. Uh, it was made under an official F1 license. Vertigo eventually got released to Scorcher, and it came out for the PC in 1996. Didn't come out for the Saturn 
until 1997, and it was considered one of the most graphically advanced Sega Saturn games of its time. It was big enough that Sega was sending demos of it to other developers to go, look, this is what our console can do. Unfortunately, it came out after Wipeout, and I think after Wipeout 2097. So it got middling reviews because people looked at it and went, yeah, but Wipeout. Yeah, it sort of feels like that game we had reviewed in Games Master recently, which was just like, it's good until you can get Wipeouts. And obviously, this unfortunately, it doesn't have that benefit of coming out on the Saturn before Wipeout does. Awesome to see Fighting Vipers here, though. Uh, definitely one of my favourite of that era of games. Weirdly, for an arcade game that didn't do that well in the West, the Saturn version sold great, great guns. And you mentioned it there and how it doesn't look like that when it comes out. Also, Luke, Kids TV, Alien Trilogy. Now, I know there was a toy line, but even the toy line was kind of buried. Aliens, facehuggers on Kids TV. It's a different time, man. This wouldn't have been in Series 1 or Series 2 for that matter. Definitely not. And also, awesome to see Tekken 2. It's a really fun preview of games that are allegedly coming out that year even though at least one of them never appears and at least one other doesn't appear for another year on the stated format and the, and the n64 games aren't gonna be out for any time soon on a scale of games coming out in the next 12 months very poor yeah yeah it's a formula one game which are 10 a penny alien trilogy and tekken 2 basically and fighting vipers in fairness anyway something to look for oh god damn it luke <laughs> jugglers again yeah just before we head off to the uh, the Atari ST. This is an Atari ST, one of the first 16-bit computers. As we're doing the best and worst this week, we thought we might do the best and worst uses of an Atari ST. The worst use certainly has to be as a home games machine. There are very few good games for it. The best use of it, though, is as a music computer because it has a special musical interface called MIDI built in. The Shaman are well-known for using computers in their music. Victoria's here to tell us how and why. Welcome. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well. I recognise the Atari, but what else have you got up here? Well, what we've got is this is our conductor and this is our orchestra. We've got a couple of samplers, and one of the things that's really good about a sampler is that... Oh, oh, separation! Oh, that's your voice? That's my voice. But if we go into the program... So that's a sample of your voice that we just heard. That has been changed rhythmically. I mean, Christmas Day, we were just talking about, like, the Ultra 64, brand new PlayStation, here are the big games coming out. And then there's Andy Crane holding this Atari ST, being like, this was a terrible games machine. However, it can be used for other things. I just imagine being a kid that's an Atari ST owner, and it's like... Oh, it's a feature on my computer. I wonder what games they're going to show me. Andy Crane, this is terrible to play games on. If you try and play games on this, it'll be bad and you should feel bad. And I'm going to throw it over a balcony. Sorry, Sonia will pick it up later. And glue it together with PVA, which I I popped huge for that. It's like, why are you putting an Atari ST back together with PVA glue? Well, why not? This feature we get here, though, uh, with, uh, with the Shaman, uh, Victoria from the Shaman, is a lot like that feature we had in Games Master Series 2 Episode 1, where they remixed Games Master, let's play a game. Games Master, let's play a game. I would absolutely agree, apart from one key difference. This feature's good. <laughs> oh, but Ash, everyone listening to this now is going to have... Games Master, let's play a game. Stuck in their head for the rest of the day. I hope that you're listening to this at half past six when it drops as well, because it will just be stuck until half past six tomorrow morning. That's going to be rattling around your brain. 
I mean, just in case they don't, Luke, do you want to drop it in right about here? Now it will be stuck in people's head and you can guarantee I won't be listening to this episode when it drops. I genuinely enjoyed this because, yeah, the Atari ST, particularly at this point, three to four years after they stopped production, not going to be getting the latest and greatest games. Amiga, you're just about getting Doom clones. On the Atari, mm, there are still some titles coming out, but not many. However, if you wanted to have MIDI devices on an Amiga, you needed an add-on interface. If you wanted them on PC, you needed an add-on interface, so on and so forth. The Atari ST, it was built in. This thing, on a hardware perspective, all you needed was kind of your controller, your MIDI keyboard, maybe your samplers, maybe a general MIDI kind of device, something like that. And you were you were good to trot. And I genuinely think that is why so many people were still using them in the music industry. Because we see Victoria here. She wasn't an original member of the Shaman, but she was in the last full lineup. I think she joined around 1992, 93, and she was with them until the kind of bitter end of that band. And she just goes through and she's just very quickly going, oh yeah, okay, cool. So you've got the Atari here, you've got the keyboard here, you've got the samplers here. This is the orchestra. Very, very quickly, just using terms that even kids will be familiar with. They know what a conductor is. They know what an orchestra is and showing on screen how the notes work and you can speed things up and slow things down. Although if you slow things down, it will piss Andy Crane off something fierce. And I was just watching it going, I don't remember this feature. I'm again, sure I watched it. But even now in 2022, I'm watching this going, this is pretty cool. This is really, really cool to hear how good this sounded in 1995. Keeping in mind, it's a computer from before 1992. This is what Bad Influence did better than Games Master. These sorts of things where you actually say, like, you know, the, the art dabbler thing that we had earlier, that's what Bad Influence does better than Games Master. I think the Games Master is a better paced show, it's a better put together show in, in many aspects. But I think things like this, or, you know, when you go back and you watch old episodes of this, or like, you know, cherry picks and things, we dropped that clip in a few, uh, well, a couple of series ago now, where they were talking about the news of video game violence and the sun running that irresponsible uh, article that they did i think that's what bad influence did so much better than dominic diamond's world i fully appreciate this and particularly because like you know games master on tv would never have done a feature on the atari st because it's so old school they want to be focusing on what the future is what i like about a bad influence they're just like look this atari st yeah it's not a great home console thing but look at what you can do over here with it things like this things like art dabbler they make you or more specifically they make the audience want to try this at home maybe that atari st has been sat unloved since you got your snes maybe you're looking at it now going i wonder if i can put those piano lessons i was forced to have for two years to good use it kind of it sparks creativity it does an art attack even people that were terrible at art i, I wasn't deliberately pointing a finger at you there because I was just thinking, like, Art Attack made art look fun. This feature made music look nerdy, but fun. Accessible. Accessible. Art Dabbler made it look fun and accessible. Absolutely. It genuinely brought me joy watching this little bit of a feature. One thing I did love, and it's kind of established already from earlier, is that Andy Crane is a grumpy old man. 
And he's just like, but the problem is all this computer music, it sounds the same, doesn't it? Because it's all perfect, made by a computer. And Victoria is right in there going, well, yeah, some of the early software, but look, it is now so advanced, we can dig right in and we can add minor variants, minor kind of tempo shifts, minor note shifts, make it sound more organic, make it sound more human. The only other thing I wanted to note about this is that where we sort of time is a circle. So yeah, this is The Shaman appearing here on the final episode of Bad Influence. The Shaman were also guests on the first episode of Series 5. We mentioned that this is a feature that's a lot like the Episode 1 feature from Series 2, an episode where The Shaman were the number one single with Ebenezer Goods. Time is a circle. It's, it's all connected. It's like the MCU. Or an Atari ST glued back together with PVA glue on the eve of its 10th anniversary, no less, Luke. It might have worked. You never know. Feast thine eyes on CITV, the place to be. Just when you thought it was safe. Jaws, the reboot. Next. Here's your receipt and your computers for school's voucher. 2B needs some extra floppies for the PCs. Let's go. Computers for school's now on. Every little helps. It takes a certain type of chip to become a healthy McCain oven chip. Ah! Cut from real potato, they're in great shape. Cooked in pure sunflower oil, they're healthier. With only 5% fat, they're fit for anything. And after all this dedication, hard work, and commitment, you get a great taste. McCain oven chips, there's no fitter chip for your plate. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you.
Well, tomorrow on CITV, it's a stick-up for Cuthbert Lilly in Zap. The writing's up in the air for Blue and the gang when his boss sends him on a crazy airborne mission in Walt Disney's Tailspin. And the geeks are having trouble settling into their new mansion. Bless them. You're a winner! Another winner! Another winner! What a go! What a fast-winning And in fact, last year was the 10th anniversary of the Atari ST. It was also a very important year for video games with the coming of the super consoles. Here's a bad influence guide to the highs and lows of 1995. January, the year kicks off with glitz and glamour at the Computer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, where the Virtual Boy is unveiled, increasing the ever-growing amount of hardware designed to make you look stupid. New Super FX chip carts like 3D combat game FX Fighter and Star Wing 2 make their first appearance. Mysteriously, none of them have been seen since. What we get here now is essentially a calendar rundown of things that happened in 1995. And it feels like this could have been condensed down into something much shorter and just sort of like cherry-picked a few things. I agree it could have been condensed down. I don't think it would have been as fun. And as people that kind of skip around a bit, because whilst we do our episode zeros, we miss huge chunks of a year. It's very cool to just have this kind of nice four or five-minute piece, or however long it was, it felt like four or five minutes, just going through each month, even if there was a month where nothing happened, because start January, the Virtual Boy debuting at CES. Boy, howdy, the Virtual Boy. That's a thing that happened. Sure is. More hardware to make you look like a dafty. They talk about the Super FX chip and Star Wing and things like that, but Andy Cray makes the point that we actually really haven't had any games for the SNES with the Super FX chip since. No, we see FX Fighter, which did actually come out as a game, but not for the SNES. There was a SNES version planned, and of course, FX Fighter came from Super FX. Nintendo basically canned it because they decided to port Killer Instinct to the SNES instead. And they were like, well, we don't want you to put a proper 3D fighter on the SNES. It might compete. So they cancelled it. But eventually, it actually got published for uh, PC in June 1995. It is a very early real-time 3D fighting game. It's certainly one of the first ones that came out there for the PC CD-ROM. And it did appear, it just it appears that Bad Influence didn't notice that it appeared because it wasn't for the original format, although it did have the same name. And the game was to have and did have eight different characters, eight different arenas, cutscenes, 40 attacks per fighter. It was going to be quite a big game if the PC version is any indicator of what the SNES version would have been. Then we get Star Fox 2, which I think we've talked about before. We have done indeed. We've actually gotten into much detail about it as well, because we did that just around the time that the big data dump came out for it. And they showed off sort of like all of the various different things that could have been in the game or were going to be in the game. And this was a game that was 95% finished, almost 100% finished, and it never got released. And some of the ideas eventually appeared in Star Fox 64, and the game itself would go completely unreleased, bar leaks of ROMs and stuff like that, until 2017, when it was one of the 21 games included on the SNES Classic, and then again in 2019, when it became part of the Switch Online subscription service. I'm glad it's out there, and it was also cool to see some contemporary footage of it here. 
Yeah, it, it, I like that it's now in an official capacity through Nintendo. I, I, I quite like that about it. And I, I played it. It was one of the first things I actually did when I got my SNES Classic was boot up Star Fox 2 or Star Wing 2. And yeah, it's okay. It's pretty good. It's a it's a lot like the original, but I had, I had a fairly decent enough time with it. February and video games go to Parliament. After six months' research into whether or not games are overpriced, the investigation concludes, yes, they are. How helpful and useful. February had one of my favourite moments, which was it was a one-note month. Parliament concluded after six months that, yes, games are too expensive. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I, I looked up about this and I tried to find, you know, uh, parliamentary rec- uh, records of this. The only one I could find was someone asking someone else, have we got an update? on uh, our question of whether the video games are too expensive, monopolies and things like that. And the person responded, no, I'll publish my report soon. And you must have done it like fairly soon thereafter. And all the other conversations about video games in Parliament at the time was about like, are video games too violent, pornography in video games? Won't somebody think of the children? That sort of thing. Weirdly, I've got some like memory that there was kind of numerous headlines of its official games are too expensive, probably like, you know, morally outraged of the Daily Mail kind of thing. So I think it was just part of the whole let's hate video games movement that was still going on at the time. In fairness, Andy Crane was complaining about that in episode one of Bad Influence. Remember that like bit at the end where he's like, we're going to look at, uh, you know, other things about the video game industry, like why are these games so expensive? And the answer is because they can be. Yeah, and also cartridges. March and the European Computer Trade Show hits London. Most people get their first glimpse of the Saturn. Of course, we had it on Bad Influence four months earlier. And Heart of Darkness, a new PC adventure with stunning graphics and cartoon gameplay is seen for the first time. March, it was the European Computer Trade Show, Europe's first look at the Saturn. Bad Influence get the dig in there going, yeah, but we looked at it four months earlier, though. And in fairness, so did Games Master. I was going to say, Games Master had it well before that, in fact. Oh, yeah. Dodgy lad in his living room. Uh, Also, first glimpse of Heart of Darkness, which was a very, very kind of well-respected, anticipated game at the time. It came out for the PC, it came out for the PlayStation, and most bizarrely, at one point, a Game Boy Advance port was planned. PlayStation was how I played Heart of Darkness, and I actually had quite a decent time with it. It's a two-disc game, if I remember correctly. And I'm pretty sure I played it at my, I definitely played it at my uncle's, and I'm pretty sure his was a bootleg copy of it as well. I was so convinced it's a bootleg copy in my memory. And I think we played that, and then I got to the end of the first disc, and then you have to switch over to the second disc, and I just turned the PlayStation off, not realizing that you just had to literally open up the thing and switch the disc over. So I made an error. We couldn't start the game again, or I didn't want to start the game again. So we just watched Return of Jafar, the, uh, the Aladdin sequel, which was also a bootleg copy because my uncle was one of those sorts of people that's had bootleg of everything. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. The game itself had a huge development cycle. I mean, here we are, what, March 1995? It had been in development since 1992, and this was the first time it was seen publicly. Like, not even a game like some of the ones we talked about earlier, where it went on to have a long development cycle, this had already been around the blocks a fair few times. Other versions were destined to come out. There was meant to be a 3DO version. There was also meant to be a Panasonic M2 version. More on the Panasonic M2 later. There was meant to be a Jaguar CD version. But Luke, guess what? What's that? It never came out. Yeah, well, what a fucking <laughs> shocker that is. Uh, I've just really double-checked that it was a two-disc game on the PlayStation. It was also meant to be a Saturn exclusive, with the PC version being held off until after the Saturn version was released. The release date of October 1996 was set for the Saturn version, but as the date approached, the publisher announced 
that the game would not be ready until late 1997. And, and by the time it got to being released, they kind of looked at it and went, the Saturn's not really going to work anymore, is it? Nah, nope. it, it will just come out on the PC and the PlayStation. April, nothing at all happens in April. Zippo, zilch, zero. And then we get to April, where nothing happens. Sweet F.A. Just to quickly double check, I'm going to go to 1995 in video games on Wikipedia and just see if there is anything. Oh, according to this, April's to tell of you the accessory for the Super Famicom was released in Japan only. Could have mentioned that. Could you? <laughs> uh, we've also got... Oh, well, Mortal Kombat 3 was released in arcades. Yeah, we've already had Doom and Alien Trilogy. Let's not push our luck because, you know, what are you going to show on Mortal Kombat 3? The title screen. Even that might have gore on it for all we know. Right, I'm just going to read this verbatim here because maybe it is interesting. So here's an event. April 6th, Funko Inc., parent company of video game retailer Funko Land, announces that Vice President Director Stanley Bodine is promoted to President and Chief Operating Officer, replacing founder David R. Pomji, who will remain as Chairman and Chief Executive. Financial controller Robert Hibben is also named Chief Financial Officer, while Vice President of Merchandising and Information Systems Michael Hingenkamp resigns from the company to pursue other career opportunities. There you go, bad influence. Something did happen in April. Something happened. <laughs> Something did happen indeed. Things pick up in May, however, with the first appearance of M2, a new add-on cartridge for the 3DO. It features game demos like this with graphics to cry for. And techies reveal why girls like Tetris. Apparently, when we play, our brains release huge amounts of endorphins, the natural chemical responsible for passion. These, mixed with the females' supposed craving for organisation, make Tetris a big hit with the girls. It must be true. The science dudes say so. Uh, I like May, however. Yeah, sure, the M2's revealed for the 3DO. But techies have finally figured out why girls like Tetris. It's because they like tidying. Yeah, the mixture of endorphins and the female propensity for organisation. I mean, Luke, I'm so glad to have found this information out because you know why I thought Tetris was popular with girls? I thought it was just because Tetris was popular with everyone, regardless of gender, age, race or background. Silly me. <laughs> Silly me. I thought it just being a good game was why it was popular with everyone. Two things I love about this. One, I love that it's Violet that's doing the VO for this section. Number two, I love the idea of some techies sitting around being like, I just can't figure it out. Why do girls like Tetris? We need to spend time and money and resources into figuring this out. This is actually the most pressing thing I can currently think of. In June, The Darkening, the newest and most expensive sci-fi game ever, begins filming at Pinewood Studios in England. The game costs an amazing £4 million to make, not to buy. In June, we found out that The Darkening started filming in Pinewood Studios at a cost of £4 million, although according to one PC review in 96, it actually costs around £5 million. And boy howdy, does this game have a car. It does. And it's also weird to have it just introduced as The Darkening, because technically it's Privateer 2, The Darkening, which is a sequel to Privateer, which is known as Wing Commander Privateer. This is worse than Mario, mate. Yeah, it's funny as well. Like when you read the reviews for this game when it eventually came out, they were like, you know, a lot of it is basically just re, you know, retreads of the Wing Commander plot. However, it's also a game that allows you to just ignore the plot and just carry on playing it. But it does indeed have a cast. I'm assuming you've got the same cast list that I do. Give us a rundown, Luke. We have got Clive Owen, Matilda May, Jürgen Pronschkow, John Hurt, Christopher Walken, Brian Blessed, Amanda Pace, and Games Master celebrity contestant Danny Bear as the onboard computer. Also, 
David Warner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, who was in the Wing Commander movie. I'm amazed, given the cast they had, that they had any money to make it look as good as it did on screen because, bloody hell, the bill for their cast must have been something to behold. That's why it ended up costing $5 million in the end. Christopher Walken don't come cheap. No, but this is a game, like the other Wing Commander games, that you can get now via good old games, and it is still quite fun. Big news in China in July, the SNES launches. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Over here, the first super console, the Saturn, appears in the shops. However, non-techies are reduced to tears when they discover that with the lead supplied, it'll only work on TVs with SCART sockets. Supplies of the leads for ordinary TVs dry up quicker than a puppy on the backseat of a Peugeot. July, Luke, the SNES launches. Dot, dot, dot. In China. Indeed, yeah. Whereas here, we got the Sega Saturn but it only works on TVs with SCART cables. Oh, no, not with SCART. I mean, I understand why it was such an issue, because there were a lot of TVs, particularly older TVs, anything made before, like, about 1990, probably, that didn't have a SCART socket on the back, and that is absolutely fair. But nowadays, the concept of playing, like, a retro console as they are now on anything lower than a SCART, you'd have to be high as a kite to consider that. But back then... It was a borderline scandal. Yeah, pretty much, because not every TV had them. And I think it is, you're right, because like we kind of look at it from a retrospective aspect of this. Like when I got my Sega Sat and I was at university, so my TV just had a scarp, you know, had a scar outlet on it. But I think back, you know, the TV that I had when I was a, I was a nipper didn't have scars on it. It only had the TV aerial thing, which is how I used uh, used to run my Mega Drive on it. You had the little block with the yep. two in, the one out, and the little switch that went back and forth. Exactly, yeah, from TV into into video game and stuff. So, like, I I think in time, like, if I'd have been bought a Sega Saturn in 1995, I wouldn't have been able to play it at home because I wouldn't have been able to do it on my TV in my bedroom. I'd have actually used it on the TV downstairs, and even then, would have been taking out the VCR and plugging in the Sega Saturn. The thing that got me the most about this wasn't the kind of like the complaints that were voiced about it and the mentioning that it was a fact you know they said they ran out of stock of the rf video lead but it's the line from andy crane which is supplies of the rf leads dry up quicker than a puppy on the back seat of a peugeot jesus <laughs> you know what's a great punchline for a joke in a kid show about video games luke yeah dogs dying in hot cars there we go that's it that's 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 what's going to get them buzzing on the playground it's that teenage audience again. Speaking of which... August. Doom playing is banned in offices all over the world. And the term cyberskyver is coined to describe people who spend too much time playing games at work. Doom's back. Doom's on bloody bad influence again. And we get to learn a new term, Luke. The cyberskyver. Because <laughs> we kind of had a bit of this in Games Master Series 5 with the Doom challenge of lads playing it in the office and things like that. But yeah, this did become a new story and it was officially banned in offices from being people playing it as land parties. You know, kind of what we got earlier in this episode. I have never heard the term cyberskyver, though. No, I don't know. I, and it's the sort of thing you would have expected in that challenge. We just had to take a quick break. And while we did, I got my cyberpunk handbook out just to check for the term cyberskyver. And I've got cyberspace, cyberpunk, cyber yup, and cypherpunk. So no, 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 no cyberskyver in here, Luke. That's a, that's a shame. Although a cyber yup is a tourist on the info highway, a net crawler, a web browser. If artists and nerds are sort of squatting or homesteading their homepages, cyber yups create theirs as investment property. Basically, 
the kind of NFT wankers of their days. September and the most important week in the whole video games year. Bad influence starts. Oh, and in London, there's some new console called the PlayStation, launched with tons of new games. Apparently, they offload about £9 million worth of the things in three days. And despite all our bad influence review warnings, Primal Rage tops the games charts. File it in the bin. Good and bad news for September, I suppose, because bad influence returns to TV. The PlayStation was released, but ugh, Primal Rage topped the console charts, which actually we covered extensively when we did Games Master, because it was just top of the console charts for ages. Despite the fact, as we mentioned in the Buyer's Guide episode, no good home port of this game exists. And they even say here, it's like, did you not see our reviews? Did we not warn you? This game is bobbins. Yeah, but you can't resist. Cannot resist big monsters beating the cack out of each other. How many Godzilla movies do we own between us, Luke? Got, I mean, and some of them, Ash, I've got on multiple different versions because so, I've got them on different releases from different territories. And as much as we love them, they're not all good, are they? Oh, no. I mean, try watch. I actually did a marathon once where we watched the first 15 movies in one sitting. That is a tough marathon to get through. Can't be too critical of people buying Primal Rage because I own a lot of crap monster movies. I also can't be that critical either because I bought Primal Rage. Oh, wow, I never did that. You're bad and you should feel bad. October. Killer Instinct is cancelled for the Ultra 64, but amazingly comes out on the SNES. October. Killer Instinct cancelled on the N64, but is released on the SNES. And we've got loads of lovely features about that in Games Master as well. I look back on that Killer Instinct episode as one of my favourites of Series 5. That big challenge of the arcade version and then the review of the SNES port. November and the Ultra 64 fails to get launched in Japan. It slipped more times than a tap-dancing centipede on a banana skin. However, Bad Influence is treated to a preview of the machine in Tokyo, and top games for the console are scarce, but crowds are amazed by the, well, amazing Super Mario 64. It slips more times than a tap-dancing centipede on a banana skin. It's a very Baldrick line, that one. I had the feeling that there was a lot of, like, Blackadder influence on the writing of this because you're right like that in particular is a very very Blackadder-esque line and they also covered the trade show the one we talked about in depth talking about how playable games are scarce but the crowds were wowed by Mario 64 they weren't off right on both counts yeah Dave Perry won't be wowed by it though he's not going to see it for ages he's waiting until it comes out in the UK I mean you won't have time he is a marketing manager not a journalist I'm a marketing manager sure sure now now so what's juggling got to do with computers? Well, this is Juggling Master, one of many programs available to help professional jugglers like Sean invent new ways to juggle. You type in numbers to represent patterns and the computer shows you what they will look like. Now, this is the simplest pattern of all, known to jugglers as a three-ball cascade. And as you can see, Sean's doing it rather well. But the real aim of the game is to try much harder patterns like this one, the seven-ball cascade, so you can see what it looks like. And this is actually quite hard to do, but Sean's going to give it a go. Yeah! <laughs> Luke, finally! <laughs> it's the juggler's moment to shine. We will find out why there has been a man juggling like his life's depended on it for the past 20 minutes. Yes, yeah, so this is the running gag that they've had throughout the episode thus far, and it now pays off here because there's this game, I suppose you can call it, it's basically like a sequence generator thing called Juggling Master. And the idea is, is that you type in numbers into it and sort of like high lows and pants and things like that and it will essentially tell you if you were to juggle in real life this is how you would do it and this is how it would look so i guess it's kind of a way to be like well i've got this idea in my head but does this feasibly work 
and you type into a machine, the machine will be like, yeah, you probably can do that. And then you try it and see if you can do it. But you don't really need the machine to do that because as they point out in this, you could do a massive cascade in this of like 35 balls that just wouldn't be physically possible to do. I think this computer will just program anything you tell it to do. I think what this program will do is you'll give it the number of balls you want to have, misses, and you might feed in a couple of other variables and it will show the movement pattern. It will show which ones need to go high, which ones need to go low, what order you need to be moving your hands in. Now, if that movement turns out to be physically impossible, that's fine. But you at least know the correct number of steps that you can take. The thing that shocked me the most about this is technically you can still download this piece of software. I know. It's out there for free. Did I download it? God, no. I do not want to install it on my computer because I've no idea where it's been or where it's come from. I, I was looking this up earlier to like just try and find any information and all I could find were just multiple download links for it. Juggling is actually a skill I wish I had. Like I made that joke earlier about jugglers and now it's, I, it's from a routine. I can't remember which routine it's from now or who the original comedian was, but it's genuinely something that I wish I could do. My brother is amazing at juggling. He's really, really good at it. And he has over the years tried to teach me I am Violet Berlin at the end of this, just doing it with one ball, throwing up in the air and catching it. And that is as far as I can get. I think we talked about it before, but uh, one of my schools I went to had an alternative club, which wasn't a place you went to to listen to obscure music. It was a place for juggling, plate spinning, Diablo, Devil Six, kite flying, unicycling, stuff like that. Very, very cool. Entirely brought about because a PE teacher thought it was cool. He was right. Everyone going along to start with had a set of three juggling balls. And after about the first two to three weeks, those juggling balls were put in the cupboard and I focused on things I could do, like plate spinning, Diablo, not so much the devil sticks, kite flying, ultimate frisbee. The juggling was what brought me to the dance, but as soon as I got there, I'm just like, I would much rather be doing something else. Two, one, Ridge Racer Revolution is, surprise, surprise, the follow-up to the renowned Ridge Racer. It features more high-speed racing action with the addition of a rear-view mirror and some spectacular new tracks. The game also has a link-up option, allowing for some frantic two-player duels if you have another PlayStation, another TV, and another copy of the game, that is. OK, the cars can be quite difficult to handle at first, careering all over the place until you get the hang of the controls. But once you work out how to take the corners, it's a really spectacular ride. Before you get in the driver's seat, you have to choose a track and a car. There are three tracks and four cars to start with, with more becoming available the more you win, or if you cheat. <laughs> this is the hardest track in the game, speeding through all these hairpin turns and narrow, windy roads. It takes a lot of concentration, Nicola. And the other drivers are really aggressive, so the rearview mirror is especially useful so that you can block them from overtaking you. Yeah, you can view the race from inside or outside the car, but I prefer being inside because the sensation of speed is much better. One of the things I don't like about this is when you hit something, like another car, concrete wall, even a grass verge, you just bounce off no matter how fast you're going. What really makes the game is the two-player mode. Humans are always the most competitive opponents, and beating a friend in the final <laughs> lap really gets the adrenaline going. When you've finished all the tracks in first place, you get to race them backwards like we're doing here. Your opponents are a lot tougher in this mode, especially in time trial, while the ultra-fast Black Devil car makes an appearance. Racing through spectacular scenery to immense speeds is really appealing. The game is good. It's a great racing game, especially for two people. And the celebrity scores for Ridge Racer Revolution, amazingly, fives again. Two reviews we get here. First one is Ridge Racer Revolution, which we actually had reviewed in Games Master as well. But I think this is 
a slightly different review compared to what we had in the first time round because they actually do show them playing, not playing the game, they don't show them playing the game. John and Nicola are looking down at something and it looks like they're holding something in their hands. And the way they talk about Ridge Racer Revolution sounds like they did actually play it as opposed to them just reading off a lot of marketing gumph with the Yoshi's Islands. They're definitely, I think, still using an auto cue, but it felt like they may have actually had some input in what was on it. I think they were actually playing these games because also the gameplay we see is not kind of demo perfect. They're yeah. not doing amazing. There's a bit in Virtual Fighter 2 where he literally reacts to something happening on screen as if it literally happened to him in that moment. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed these two reviews. The Yoshi's Island one, I was very cynical. I made the QVC joke. This one, I'm just like, I mean, the review doesn't matter to me. I already know in retrospect, I like Ridge Racer Revolution. I already know that as much as I want to, I still don't get on with Virtual Fighter. But I did enjoy some of the comments because they felt very human and real like donna talking about one of the things she didn't like in ridge racer is that no matter whether you hit a car a wall or go on grass the reaction of the car is all kind of the same you just kind of bounce off it if you're kind of a big video game player you just accept that because that's what happens in a game but if you're someone that's not a dedicated gamer that's the sort of thing you might look at and go but why though the other thing I liked about it, you talk about from a human perspective, Andy Crane's intro into this, I think is so human, where he's like, yeah, you can play this two-player if you've got a link cable, oh, and two PlayStations, oh, and two TVs, oh, and two copies of the game. Like, in Games Master, they talked about the link cable hookups for these games like it was nothing. Because in Games Master and the crew on Games Master, they all had PlayStations, they all had TVs, they all had the copies of the games, they all had the same thing. So if Rick Pe- Rick Henderson went over to Dominic Diamond's house, they'd be very easily to hook up Ridge Racer and play a two-player. However, like, for a regular Joe Schmo, it's a very difficult thing to really set up and do. Unsurprisingly, given how much they seem to love this game, they also gave this fives, which I do believe is a five out of five scale. So that means technically... It just got five out of five. I don't know what would have happened if one gave it five and one gave it four. That would have been weird. I guess it a nine out of ten, I suppose you would call it. Or four and a half out of five, you split the difference. Yeah, maybe. I guess something along those lines. It's a flawed system, although it's not as flawed as what it was back in Series 1 when it was boys and girls. Oh, aged like a fine murder. Indeed, yeah. I enjoyed this review a lot more than the Yoshi's Island one. It was still a pointless review, but it was an enjoyable pointless review, much like the next one. Ready, go! Virtual Fighter 2 is the most wanted video game in history, with orders of over one and a half million in Japan alone. There were ten fighters to choose from, including a teenage kung fu master and a rather unsteady 83-year-old. Each fighter has over a hundred moves, and the 3D animations are fluid and spectacular. The first thing you notice about this game is its speed. It moves twice as fast as Virtual Fighter, and it looks a lot better. All the fighters' moves are controlled by just using three buttons, block, punch and kick, which makes the game really easy to get into. And the fighting is really realistic, using real punches and kicks rather than unrealistic fireballs and teleports. Each character has their own fighting style. I'm, I'm fighting against Wolf with my favourite character, Shun. But Shun has, Shun has made a rather... He's got a rather odd method of fighting, which involves swinging from a bottle in his belt and then falling over a lot. He's quite fit for his age, and he can fight standing on his hands, or when the going gets a bit rough, he can fight from a sitting position. <laughs> 
There are lots of nice touches in this game, like the way fighters' heads follow their opponents' movements. I especially like the way you enter your name in the high score chart in ranking mode by beating up the letters. The graphics are great, the action is fast, and the characters are really entertaining. It's the best beat-em-up I've ever seen. And the celebrity scores for Virtua Fighter 2? You're never going to believe this! Where we get Violet introducing Virtua Fighter 2, giving us the rundown on the characters, the big sales in Japan, Donna's bigging up the speed, Luke's going after the fact that the controls are simple to pick up, talking about the relatively few buttons involved, which again makes me very much believe they were actually playing this. And Donna turns heel on us, Luke, by praising the realistic moves while dogging on fireballs. What the hell, Donna? That felt like a scripted line from someone else. Like that feels like an Andy Crane line that's been that's been shoehorned into this. And I'll tell you what's not a shoehorned in line. This is very much uh, a Nicole line is where she says the best thing about this game is you have to beat up letters to put your name into the high score table. That is a very human reaction, a very human review of Virtual Fighter 2. Probably from someone who's not massively keen on games, but they saw that and was like, well, that's fun. They look like they were having fun by this point. I wonder if Yoshi's Island was the first one like they actually filmed and then they kind of got into it a bit more as they went on because I genuinely believe these two were playing it and having a bit of a laugh ribbing each other not playing it the best but having a bit of a giggle Donna says it's the best beat-em-up she's ever seen and Luke would you Adam and Eve it it's fives all round again it's fives all round again and then Andy Crane puts over the pantos that they're currently in yeah Nicholas in Cinderella in Stockport and John is in Beauty and the Beast in Ashton Underline. What about the worst games? What about the turkeys? We now present the Bad Influence Guide to the worst games for all systems. Although they may not have been out for long, the Super Consoles have already got their fair share of stinkers. Digital pinball on the Saturn smells worse than a sweaty salmon. So, the bin beckons. And Street Fighter the movie on the PlayStation is pretty putrid too. These black CDs may look great, but this one's better off in pieces. And our last segment we have on the show here is Bad Influence Guide to the Worst Games, which is when this show basically becomes a primordial angry video game nerd. So let's run down them relatively quickly. Digital Pinball on the Saturn. It gets a drubbing and is thrown in the bin. I'm assuming this is Digital Pinball Last Gladiators. It had four tables, each with its own theme. It wasn't universally hated. I think people just found it a bit dated. It's a, it's a kind of an Amiga-style thing, isn't it? With sort of pinball fantasies and things like that. I think when you go into the next gen, you want something a bit more than just a pinball game, even if it is digital. Yeah, I think the idea of a pinball simulation wasn't an appreciated thing then whereas now we've gone back we've gone back to you know sort of like appreciate them again yeah like pinball arcade on the ipad it's probably the game i play the most on the ipad i got a bunch of tables i didn't mind buying as extra dlc because of course i just got to pick and choose what games i wanted brilliant way to play the terminator pinball game the the twilight zone one the star trek the next generation one the creature from the black lagoon one i bloody love that one and it's just a really fun way to play a relatively accurate representation of the game on the train so i think that's a little unfair it's not great but it's a bit better than street fighter the movie oh god yeah head and shoulders and all the rest above it it, it i mean I, I say this as someone that owns street fighter the movie it ends up getting roasted and then smashed by a hammer and they don't just kind of fake smash it which i thought is what they were going to do after the first impact no violet takes another swing and the disc does proper shatter 
And this is, of course, based on the 1994 live-action movie. Um, someone wrote a book which featured this once, didn't they? I think they might have done, yeah. They might have, in- they might have interviewed Alan Noon, uh, the guy behind it. I don't, I, I, I don't know uh, anything more about that, to be honest. Street Fighter the movie, there was an arcade game, then there was the home port. The home port was quite different from the arcade game. As you mentioned, Alan Noon has done quite a long thread on the old Shirai Ken forums, which now does exist as an EPUB. But also there is an oral history on Polygon, which is now being turned into like a hurricane, which is a big old heavy bound book, which I backed on Kickstarter and which hopefully will make it through the paper shortages. And I'll have this year because that I'm sure will have a meaty old chapter. I would have thought so because there's a hell of a lot to say about it. You know, like, I, you know, we made the jokes there, but like when I interviewed him, he was very, very interesting in sort of like the, the things that nearly made it into the game, which we, I think we've mentioned previously on the show before, like, uh, you know, uh, Mega Man was going to be in the game. Arthur from Ghouls and Ghosts was going to be in the game. Blank, who was basically done, but just there wasn't time to, to get him completely finished. Uh, however, Blade was put into the game, not the Marvel character Blade. It's essentially just a bison trooper, and he was motion captured on a day when they didn't have any of the other actors show up and as alan did it basically because i was worried we wouldn't have enough characters so i just did this as a good backup in case everything went tits up and as it turns out he was needed and it still wasn't enough to save the game but yeah you can actually find the kind of thread from shirayu ken forums uh either right there is an epub or archive.org uh it's worth looking at although if you do go to the archive.org version Bear in mind, it's it's a message board forum from the early to mid 2000s. Pinch of salt with some of the salty takes on there. The other uh, fun thing, actually, I don't think I've ever said this on a, on the podcast before, but uh, when I interviewed Byron Mann for the Street Fighter movie, he told an anecdote of never played video games, never played a Street Fighter before he did the movie. He's a guy who plays Ryu. The only video game he's ever played is Street Fighter the movie in the arcades. Literally, the only video game he's ever played because he wanted to play it as himself. And when he was playing it, he got pickpocketed. And that was the first and last time he ever tried to play a game. I mean, if anything, there's one silver lining to this, which is the memory of being pickpocketed probably kind of numbs the pain of having to play that bloody game. Want a good racing game for the Jaguar? Then don't even think about Checkered Flag. You'd be a laughing stock if you bought this rancid racing. <laughs> Demolition Man wins the 3DO booby prize, a dreadfully dull shoot 'em up. Into the acid rain back with you. This next bit here is proper AVGN this. Like checking flat being put into a blender and then to literally turn the blender on. Might as well have put it in a toaster. Will it blend? Yes, it will. It, be- it blends better than it plays, Luke. It certainly does, yeah. Poor old Demolition Man on the 3DO gets put into literal acid. It's like that shoe being put in dip in uh, Roger Rabbit's. Acid, in <laughs> quotation marks. It's a bucket with some dry ice in it. Yeah. Uh, there was a 2D shooter for the snares in the Mega Drive. The 3DO version was kind of a shooter on rails, light gunny type game with some one-on-one fighting, some first... But it was kind of like a multi-genre game. Unfortunately, pretty much all of them were bad. But Luke, guess what? I, I think we've had this one before, but yes, what's that? There was a version planned to be published for the Atari Jaguar CD. Didn't come out. No, no. Well, that Jaguar CD, it sure did have a library of never-released titles. 
Yeah, no, I think we talked about it when we had the Demolition Man because we were talking about the movie and stuff, and it's like it's legit one of my favorite movies ever. A movie that I'm still surprised hasn't had not even a direct-to-DVD sequel done on it. Like, even I would have thought that would have happened. I know that, like, when I interviewed Sylvester Stallone for The Expendables 3, and because uh, Wesley Snipes was also on that panel, I was like, would you ever consider doing Demolition Man 2? He was well up for it. Even Snipes was up for doing it, despite the fact that his character is very much dead. Oh, that's an easy one. You clone him. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's the future, isn't it? So that's quite easily done, yeah. The only thing he hated was the bleach blonde hair that he had, because it literally damaged all of his hair. I don't blame him. Sly would, of course, do a sequel to Demolition Man. When you look at how many Expendables movies he's done. That's why, I mean, I'm surprised they haven't had one yet. Like, and, you know, Sly's very much going through his back catalogue of movies. I would have thought that would have been quite high on the list. I love Demolition Man. It's so good. But the game is not. Nope, never had a good game. And if you haven't got a super console, never fear, there are some turkeys lurking around on the old systems too. What about the positively putrid rise of the robots on the SNES? Then there's the worst Mega Drive game for ages. The bandwagon jumping, dreadful beat-em-up. shack food. Only one thing to do with games like that. However, all those games, they were kind of on the next generation. PlayStation, Saturn, 3DO, don't worry, Luke, if you're still on a 16-bit system, because they've got shit-ass games as well. Including one that, yes, this show's title sequence is based around Andy Crane hating on Rise of the Robots and putting it in an actual toilet. And then we get Shaq Fu on the Mega Drive, which gets dunked on and then actually blown up. Dunked on, see what you did there. That's it for this show and this series. We end with a shaman playing their new single, Heal the Separation. Goodbye. And that's it. That's it for this show and this series. Here to play us out is the shaman with Heal the Separation. And like right at the end, we get some outtakes from the series, including like Andy Crane falling through the set and saying that's one for Dennis Norden, suddenly getting hit by a nerf ball from the gladiators, literally on her noggin and stuff. It's quite a cute little way to round off the show. Like it's a nicer way to end off the show than Games Master ending off its series with a baby crying. Yeah, I did like Sonya punching a camera to the point where she clearly whacked the camera and therefore whacked the camera guy because you could see the look was like one of abject horror of, oh God, have I just like killed someone? It's her first series on the show. Might have been one of her first days doing something. Yeah, Andy getting dragged off by a cow or goat. I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, there was something going on with the machine that looked very rude. I'm not quite sure what was going on there. Two very muscular people, maybe gladiators. I thought they were gladiators that were shooting Nerf balls. But it looked very rude, whatever was going on with that machine. And then, yeah, Sonya gets beamed right in the head. I didn't know if it was a Nerf ball. It looked more baseball shaped. It looked hard. Oof, man, they're shooting baseballs out of those things. That is a health and safety risk right there. Hey, it was acceptable in the 90s, Luke. Yeah, you mean, like, that bit when Andy Crane falls through the set, and they kind of shown, like, what's on screen. It looked like they were focusing on that because it looks like a dick. Oh, yeah. And that is one of those, this is on CITV. This is, like, 4 p.m. I know we say we're Games Master, but that's half past six. This is four. There's like arse attacks on after this. Or before this. I'm never sure which order they went in. But, yeah, it's that kind of, like, TOTS TV was on less than an hour ago. Yeah, this is supposed to be wholesome arse attack entertainment, finders, keepers, entertainment. And there they are making dick jokes, trying to keep up with Games Master. But I, I popped for the Dennis Norden reference for It'll Be All Right on the Night, and I hope against hope that maybe that did make it into it'll be all right on the night in the section we like to call some sort of pun about sets i hope amongst hopes 
that we'll do an episode if it'll be all right on the night for UCP Extra. We've we've put it down on the recording now. It will probably happen. It will be finding them and also... I know, yeah. Finding one which doesn't have someone on it that we really, really don't or can't talk about. <laughs> yeah. But that kind of wraps it all up. That is it for the final episode of Bad Influence. I kind of, I, I'm gutted that the show has come to an end at this point because I do think that yeah, it is a bit chaotic at times uh, and not in a good way in terms of like its its lack of coherent pacing uh, and its sort of breakneck pace on covering things. Like you never, never things aren't really given time to breathe. However, I do think that the show really did offer something. And I think it is a real shame that it, this this is it for the for it. I, it gets a bit of a revival thing uh, for like children's TV, but it's not really bad influence. And I think that's a shame. It's one of those discussions that we've had. We're still having. What do we do when we reach the end of Games Master? And watching this, I did think, could we do some more bad influence? But the biggest thing that would actually stop me is not even the breakneck speed. It's the fact that the time frame is identical. Bad Influence and Games Master were, within an odd couple of weeks either side of each other, running consecutively. If Bad Influence was running in the off-season of Games Master, there might be a case for it, or for at least for us to do a lot more, because it would be a whole era that we generally didn't cover. But unfortunately, there is a lot of repetition. We lucked out with this episode because of the way they framed it, in that there was actually a lot that we wouldn't have otherwise talked about. I wish there was more. I wish they'd run more than four seasons. I wish they'd run just a little bit longer. And given the change in pace we've had on Games Master, it was nice to get a bit chaotic again. I said that Games Master is quite lackadaisical now because it's a very much a laid back show. And, you know, it's a long intro from Dominic Diamond. The reviews feel girthier, if you will. There's longer chats with the contestants and the celebrities and things like that. Whereas this is just like, no, we've got eight games that I need to preview here and I've only got 50 seconds to do it in. So you are getting seven seconds of Super Mario Kart R and you are going to appreciate those seven seconds. And I kind of like it from that aspect of it. Also, like it's watching this back as well. You're just like, bloody hell, Violet Berlin's great. Like, she's so good on this show. She's a wonderful screen presence. And even, you know, grumpy Andy Crane, who doesn't like video games, is very good at doing children's TV. He's a very good children's TV host. His on-screen presence balances things. If you look at Violet and her energy, if you look at Sonia and her energy, Andy is the big brother slash dad. He's the calming influence. You know, he's got a cheeky bit of humour himself. I love the bit earlier in the quest for fame thing where he's just like, oh, you know, well, we just as well, we don't need the virtual guitar because, you know, we're going in different directions musically. So, you know, you're not required. I, I like that whole bit of like, you know, it's not me. It's not you. It's me with the band. The whole thing like take five, everyone. We'll have a quick break now. Like, oh, that's nice. It was very cute. But he is otherwise the kind of the, the for the most part, the, the kind of the dad jokes and the uh, and the and the calming influence whereas violet and sonia are the um the high energy mm, i think they've got a really nice balance on the show and yeah I'm, i am sad to see that the back of of bad influence because i think i think seeing the show has a lot to offer and as i said throughout this it did something that games master didn't do and it did those things better than games master ever could and i love it for it and i and you know i, I will miss it 
But that is going to do it for this episode of Under Consultation. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on social media at underconsolepod on Twitter, at under.console on Instagram, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to give us a bit of real-time feedback, if you want to find out what's going on with us, with other listeners, with other fans of retro gaming and retro pop culture, you can do so over on our Discord, where the conversation is wrestling and a lot of excitement about Return to Monkey Island and also the arrival of not one, not two, but three Persona games on the Nintendo Switch. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you will get access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other shows from the 80s and 90s and our monthly community show under console nation. And at the five pound level, you will get next week's episode one week early and ad-free, but at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do they get? At the £10 level, you get the under-consultation glittery golden mug filled with retro sweeties, trading cards, stickers, badges, other goodies. It's a fun little bundle of joy that will be delivered fresh to your door. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty Boo, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, Harriet, Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, David Barmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew, Adam, Paul, and Andy. Thank you all so much for listening to this show. We love and appreciate every single one of you, and we will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. CITV, the advice is trust no one. Feel the power. Reboot. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.